Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, if you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much, much more. Remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. Here's Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with concert violinist Georgia Flizanas. She has held positions with the orchestras of Chicago and San Francisco, and finally was concertmaster, we will explore what that means later on, of the Minnesota Orchestra from 1989 until 2009. She taught for a number of years at the renowned Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University Bloomington, where she fostered intense musical collaborations with teachers and students alike. A mentor, friend, and colleague of mine, she is known not just for the passion and intensity, but also the cerebral attention to detail she brings and demands of her musical partners to every performance. I'm pleased she's joining me. Georgia Flizanis, welcome. Great to be here with you, Daniel. Why do people fall in love with music in the first place? What is it? You can probably only speak about yourself, but but what is it that grabs a hold of a four-year-old and never lets go until the last day? I'd have to say that there are very few things that you have no defense when you're in the presence of it. One of those things is music. It, it's an instant substance that enters into you on so many levels of perception. When you're little, all you know is that you're hearing something that's way bigger than you and it overwhelms you. Audi- audibly speaking, your ears are completely captivated by an organized set of sounds that can actually manipulate your mood and manipulate the way in which you suddenly feel about yourself. I mean, it is it is a bit of a kind of an alien creature music in that it possesses you entirely if you're in its presence. And I think from that point forward, you're, you're, you're sort of submitting yourself to it and uh, the best part of that equation, although it sounded a little scary the way I just presented it, is that it always has an emotional carriage or message that if you're going to play something for a four-year-old, you're not going to play the last movement of the Schubert B-flat sonata for piano. You're going to play something that's <laughs> going to be a folk song or something that's going to be, you know, spirited, uplifting, and it's going to be, you know, for a child appropriate. But, you know, for adults, we have higher tastes, we have higher expectations, and we have higher problems psychologically. So I feel as though music, in a way, is a therapist free of charge, unless you're going to a concert, in which case you should pay for that concert. (laughs) So when you talk about kids versus adults, something that comes up a lot is, uh, well, how do we approach getting someone to like, quote, classical music, which is a a difficult term, uh, but how do we get someone to like it later in life? And I've often found that uh, the 
act of just getting them to sit down and listen is all that's needed, actually, uh, versus lots of education or, or formalistic training that, that most people are pretty receptive. What do you find when you talk to people after concerts? You do a lot of interacting with audiences and, and you're, you're great at, at talking with people from the general public. What do you find that people respond to just viscerally? There's a sense in the room when you're playing that there is a um, something at the, at the higher end of a communion going on between not only the people in the room, but the uh, the act of the creators, the, the the interpreters, the the generators of great art that are in that room, and that require a receptive congregation. Period. I mean, that's that is the equation of music. It it is a the act of uh, the devotion of the generators or the even the you could call us high priests whatever you want to call us i mean we're interpreting it from a large tome of a repertoire that represents over a span of 2 300 years some of the greatest art music art ever established by human beings to enrich a civilization and that art is there as a kind of commodity of of generating in us a, a vision of life, a vision of experiencing life in ways that we can't actually ascertain by reading about it. It's, it is, it's an organizational method of, of treating the spirit of a person, the, the emotional receptors that we all have, and igniting them in a way that actually transforms them by the end of the concert. So I know that's gone on. I mean, I understand that concept very well, and I know it for myself. So when I see people after a concert, they either look bug-eyed, you know, like they just were, you know, in the face of a an avalanche or a, you know, a volcanic eruption of some kind and survived it. And, and they know they've changed. And so it's actually hard to verbalize after a concert. Sometimes people are just blithering and, you know, just, oh my God, it, uh, I just, and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I get it. I get, I get what happened to you. And usually there's tremendous gratitude. It's yeah. And in a strange way, I guess it's like with actors where I always imagine after I've, when I've, I've experienced this, where I've gone backstage after a play and I'm not an actor, but I was deeply affected in the same way I would be if I were on stage reversed. And I don't even know what to say. I'm not even sure what the hell, how I should even talk to these people because if it's a King Lear or if it's something, just one of these giant playwrights delivering, you know, what can you say? This person was, was the, was the mouthpiece for a great mind. And all you can say is I was blown away by you, by the words. And that seems so inconsequential. So I guess what you have to really count on is getting people in the hall. And maybe that answers your question. I'm not sure it does. It, it does. And, and there's, there's not going to be a lot of people in halls for a little while. So, so let's give us a little music lesson. We have Beethoven over there uh, behind me. Talk about why Beethoven still has such power, still has such appeal. Why people who go in and hear what a Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or the Ninth, why are they 
want to go hear it and why afterwards, even if they may have heard it a hundred times, they're still exhilarated and the players are still exhilarated. I know for me, there's, there's nothing like playing Beethoven 5 and, and it almost gets better every time uh, rather than, than more routine. Quite the opposite happens, I think. Yes. Well, I agree with everything you just said um, as far as the impact of, of that particular giant it's interesting. I was just listening to a performance that Garrick Olson did uh, for Stanford Lively Arts series, and he did two piano sonatas, the Opus 78 and the Opus 110. And what was interesting about how he spoke about Beethoven, and I'll just paraphrase a little bit, was that it was all about the idea of seclusion and um, and the the the, uh, the result of, of seclusion and what happens. Uh, in the case of Beethoven, here was a very isolated human being and someone who became more isolated. I mean, he was he was socially someone who was a little bit rugged around the edges and wasn't terribly easy in public and around people. Well, who could blame him? He was he was manifesting and germinating unbelievable music in his head, and he had a task, but his his alienation socially became even more exacerbated with his loss of hearing. And I think the fact that he was so incredibly removed from, from life and public life and people, very much as many of us are right now, this is sort of a combination plate I'm handing you right now, which is to say that here is somebody who lived in isolation and whose creative output as a result was the sum of having had only himself and his germs of thoughts and ideas and the, the potential to create musical substance and line that that stretched over, a, I guess, a, a level of agony, maybe of turmoil and struggle, which, you know, all of that is just in the, at the human gut level. Okay, that's not, that doesn't produce music. I mean, it's obviously, it's his skill as an architect and as someone who learned incredibly well from his previous teachers and mentors before him, but he was going to cast something much greater. And I don't know that we can explain why the hell he did, except to say that he, after he sort of dabbled his toes in the water as a classical composer and wrote more and more initially like Haydn in terms of invention and even, even the scale of it, his, his, his world was to see Mount Everest. And he began to expand on that and emotionally, I think, was driven to explore beyond where music had gone at that point and literally tore open all the doors of convention in terms of size, in terms of, in terms of the utterances. And he was a person who was going to utter great things. I mean, there, there are people, I think, who out of their own nature of looking at humanity on a much grander scale than just most of us. His desperateness to be wanted and to be part of and never to be able to was the, was the grinding stone that on some level, the friction plus his, I think his initial long-term goal as a composer was to, was to create a whole new set of, of principles about what music can be. And he, he spoke about humanity. Everything he did was speaking about the larger issues of humanity, but, but musically in ways that we can, we can only appreciate 
if we study it very carefully to understand the great architect he was as well. I mean, he was like a a Leonardo da Vinci. He had that kind of multiple level of, of seeing things. You talk about seeing Mount Everest. You talk about the world of music before and after. Tell people why. What was it that Beethoven did? You mentioned size of the orchestra. You mentioned length. You mentioned scope. When when you talk about blowing apart and 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 superseding precedents, what did that mean more specifically? What's the difference between the second symphony and the third symphony? Well, without getting into nuts and bolts, because I don't think that's what you want me to do here. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I think I think we have to say that the art of the classical language that was Haydn and Mozart um, in terms of just the scale of movements and the idea that when you have forms that have been very uh, traditionalized and even in those forms with Haydn and Mozart, there was amazing invention. So invention, meaning the way you treat material, even the melodic nature of the music, it they covered unbelievable ranges of, of both uh, the giddy, the exuberant, to the very deeply um, mournful and sorrowful and even vulnerable nature of melodies that move us, move us very much as deeply as any music after it. I mean, romantic music, rom- anything forward. There was, a, there was a depth of expression in Mozart and in Haydn's slow movements that really I think would have been fodder for Beethoven in the long run to see that is actually how you can express in, in slow movements, particularly um, the, the, the greater elements of, of the human dynamic. And I think when you look at the second symphony, you see someone who's capable of handling the material of a classical language effortlessly and with great gracefulness and elegance and tricky, very, I mean, technically very hard to, to pull off. You mean hard to play? Hard to play, hard to play well. They're hard, it's hard to navigate. It's, you can see there's a lot in there that's, that's maybe waiting to bust out. I mean, I'm going to say that just because I've just looked at those symphonies so many times. So that when you get to the third symphony, it's as though he had just brushed that off he suddenly allowed the the form to open up almost twice the size of what had happened in the move in the music before his second symphony his first symphony mozart haydn and now he's starting to really say i've got a lot to say and i'm going to just roll the rolling pin out and give you an exposition that's a lot longer and i'm give you a development that's a hell of a lot longer and i'm going to tie it all together in a summation so that this first opening movement is going to already be as long as any, you know, movement practically of a Haydn symphony. So, and then, then you get into the second movement, which of course this piece was dedicated initially to Napoleon, but I mean, the tragedy of the way Napoleon, you know, went off the deep end, as far as Beethoven was concerned, that became his tragedy of a, of a person who was someone he respected greatly. So he turned this march funebre, this funeral march, into to a 
probably one of the most amazing of its, at that moment in time, examples of how to take a, um, literally the, tra- the trappings of a funereal march in da-da-da-dum, this kind of a drum da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, that tattoo of a funeral march and create again an immense tapestry of some of the deepest, most, well, again, I would say uh, on, a, on a level of having his own experience of loss. This was a, a movement of loss. Sometimes there's hope in this, in this movement. There's a great moment when the darkness lifts and there's this moment of C major, which is almost literally like you can't imagine escaping the, the depth of what the first part of the movements tells you and, and ex- you experience it. It's kind of a, a giant novel, an immense novel of, of expression that already tells us this is somebody with tremendous gravity. And, you know, to go from there to the scherzo, which again, this is like Mozart could do, turning on a dime and able to just take us out of that right away. And then into this exuberant, non-stop connection between the, the minuet scherzo into the final movement. These are these are amazing things that that only the great composers, at least I'd have to say, became great because of their pursuance of stretching the envelope. Talk about what it's like to play the pieces with many different conductors, because remember the audience for this is a general audience, not, not a music audience per se. Uh, And we don't even have tons of musicians on this show. So it's a great opportunity to hear you, seasoned player, uh, demystify what it is, A, that a conductor does, and B, what the interaction is like, and C, I wonder what waters you have to navigate if you're playing a piece that you love with a conductor that you hate. (laughs) Well... Let's start with that last statement. <laughs> I think um, you have to remember in, and I, I will say this, I'm sure is true of all organizations that have a top level CEO where everything that that person represents um, and espouses trickles down into the um, layers and layers below it to create the, the uh, tone and the, the working atmosphere of that company, of that institution. And orchestra, okay, it's the same idea. You have either the music director, who is the person you're going to see most often, your most often CEO of the orchestra. Then you're going to see guest CEOs. Let's just call them secondary CEOs, which is meaning to say that for that week that they're with you, they are the CEO. They, you, they represent what you're going to have to take as the gospel on the way you're going to turn the corners on all this music that you're going to play. And they're there to help you turn those corners. An orchestra can pretty much play by itself great swatches of the repertory that they've, that they become familiar with and that they've performed together. It's like in their, it's, it's in their wheelhouse. They, they know it. Seasoned players know how every corner can be taken. Many times we've done them. So we're already tempered and, and prepared to navigate through those, those corners and the ebbs and flows 
uh, by the way we are tuned into each other, the way we interact with each other, our unity, because an orchestra has to believe first and foremost that they must do that performance as one unit. There's no room for anarchy. There's no room for, I don't like this, okay? You swallow things you don't like because in a certain sense, it's not about that at a certain point because you have control over lots of things as an orchestra. So the, the conductor could come up and the first vibration is one of, all right, this guy has a bad vibe. I mean, there's something I don't like about this guy. I don't know what it is, but I have to just turn that off and get to the musical issues at hand. You have to sublimate what is a personal reaction to let, let's get down to business. We've got a concert in three days and, and we need you and you need us. So there's a symbiotic connection there that has to be tooled together and it has to be done on behalf of the music. The music becomes the sanctuary where all ills are removed from the situation. You don't have to like the person next to you. You don't have to like the guy across from you. You don't have to like any of the people around you if you don't want to. I mean, I'm not even saying that's whatever happens in an orchestra, but that's not the issue. You're professionals. You won that position in the orchestra. That's because the orchestra wanted what you had to offer as, a, as an artist. So you're part of a team, and now that team has got to go out and do the deal. So honestly, I'd have to say that you have to understand that music is the, is the actual, it's the motor that's going to take us from A to Z. It's going to get us there. What we put into it is in part the execution of the music. The conductor is at the best, highest level is going to make us play better than we even imagined we could. Sometimes a conductor that's creating friction in an orchestra can get the orchestra to function at a higher level in its own unity to bring the performance to a place that it might not be able to go just based on what the conductor's giving you. And you have to trust me with this because I, I don't ever like to criticize conductors per se because we've got to make, as I say, we've got to make a concert come together. But the sad part is that oftentimes the orchestra's not as congratulated as the conductor. And I, the, this is an aspect, I've, I mean, I've seen this in certain parts of my career. Um, I think when the orchestra creates a connection to the community that it lives in and is, has outreach to the community and, the, and interacts with the community after concerts, especially, that community understands who those people are and their dedication. And they will really, they'll, they'll, they'll be grateful for what the orchestra is doing. And if it's a guest conductor, look, this guy's got a disadvantage. Nobody knows who he is unless he's come back several times, in which case, if he's come back, the orchestra must like him and the community must like him. And he does good concerts. But in essence, it's really the conductor that gets the big limelight. And the orchestra is, in essence, what's giving the product, what's, what's showing the music in every respect. You know, you talk about outreach, and, and a lot of people think outreach just means playing kids' concerts and going into the community at 10 a.m. You go play in a high school or something. But, but outreach also... Uh, one of the wonderful things, and you and I have experienced this together after concerts, is going into a restaurant and you run into a group of 10 people 
friends who were at the concert and they come over to your table and say how much they liked it. And, and that's outreach in a way, too, because uh, the familiarity and the uh, intimacy and the just collegiality uh, of everything. And it gets to be a routine and they get to see the mysterious players in, in all black and white tie and tails, uh, you know, with, with a, a pizza and a cocktail or something. <laughs> I think people aren't just missing the the big symphonies now or even the string quartets, not that those concerts are really happening either, but they're also missing everything that goes with it. For example, I was uh, browsing around the internet last night, not even thinking about this conversation, although it was in the back of my head, and I came to a recording I had never heard before. It was a recording of a Brahms' first piano trio from 1952 with Pablo Casals and Myra Hess and Isaac Stern. And I was thinking... It's another world. It's another world from what I hear around today. It's 1952. Uh, the pianist and the cellist were both born the century before. They were both born in the 19th century. The sound is literally different. Why is the sound different? There are many levels to what I guess I should say in response to that question. One one is I think the recordings were analog recordings. And I think analog, I will say this till my dying days, is a representation of musical sound that is literally the most sumptuous capture of the ambient warmth uh, that instruments can can actually generate in 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 resonance and in interactive blending it it's there is just nothing else like that sound now i mean you were listening to it maybe on your headphones i don't know if you were you were okay so i mean i think you'd have to agree that that the difference between what we went from to the digital age is just we we just left a lot in the dust behind in terms of this immediacy of the human connection to a, a performer and their instrument and the sound that 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 chemistry makes that's one two the approach to music of course over the generations has a lot to do with the influence of teachers to those people who were then going back into the 19th century and the sense of timing would be terribly different i mean we're coming from a period where timing in life was so different, the spaciousness of life, the, the ability to have time to contemplate and think and to confer in your mind with what it is that you're doing with music and your relationship to it, your relationship to literature, your relationship to many things. I think the cultivation of people from that period of time was much more steeped in not literature on, on all facets of art visual in every respect. They knew artists, they, they, they hung around uh, and gravitated to other creative people. That was just part of the essence of life in that period of time, socially and in, in every respect. But I think you then have the playing style, which was much differently conceived. I think they were many of them were composers. These people actually wrote music or did transcriptions. They dabbled in, in being having their hands on music as part of their their training and as part of as part of what they were expected to know about music. So I think the aesthetics all stem from this 
melange of what I just sort of described. And I, I think that violin playing, I was just talking about this interestingly enough to, a, to another musician yesterday about how at a certain point when I was growing up, there were like just a series of Mount Rushmore people that represented violin playing and cello playing. And they were, I could see them. It was like a giant spread of mountain peaks. And they all represented a style and voice of playing that was completely based on their origins of training, whether they were our students or whatever. I mean, the, the, the genesis of violin playing in this generation was really from the fount of the great teachers. And they, they had space. They had, they had space to become the individuals that they were because it wasn't a cluttered situation. It wasn't a cluttered scene. And recording was just beginning, you know, in the 20s and the 30s. So their their musicianship was like just in, un, it was pristine. And there there is some element to this capturing this, this kind of unique and very, the first, the runners of the, of the idea of instrumental and instrumental playing that was born out of the 19th century. The Mount Rushmore's violin, piano were in your ear as a kid or was there a generation in between the people who taught you? What do they sound like? I hear them in my head. Most definitely. I mean, I could, I, the, the imprint, and I think this is a very important people point for people to understand is that imprinting sound imprints are, are all around us all the time. Why is it that you can not have talked to a person for 30 years someone you knew when you were in high school and suddenly this person out of the blue calls you up and you know pretty instantly that person who that person is there's an imprint in your in your amazing kopf your head that contains a glossary a, a table of contents of vocal imprints of i can hear my grandmother's voice now she's been dead for 60 years. I mean, I can hear those. I can hear her voice. I can recall it. So to answer your question, yeah, when I heard my first recording by Fritz Chrysler that my violin teacher gave me when I was probably nine, the first sounds that that, that man played on his first, that first little groove, I mean, I was sent into cosmic orbit. It was the most lovingly tenderly i mean like a person you like your grandfather singing to you I mean, it was it was so immediate and 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 possessed me that sound honestly i i've always wanted to have that sound come somewhere out in my playing and that goes on and on from there when i had my first recording of heifetz okay that was her big shoes to fill i'm not going to play like heifetz i'm never going to play like any of these people and nobody is ever going to play like somebody that they listen to whenever whenever people are concerned about you know listening to recordings and imitating them well i'm sorry that is foolhardy thinking you can never ever imitate the way a great player is because what that doesn't even make sense you can try to copy the way they phrase something but that's even foolhardy i mean it's so it one with the with the um the intonation the handling of the way they use the intonation the way they vibrate the way they manipulate the sound, the way they 
They color and the thi- fingers themselves, right? E- even the shape of, of the pad of the finger. Absolutely. How it, how it closes a string, how lightly it's on the string. A lot of musicians don't listen to tons of music, and some do. You're in the latter camp. You listen to a lot of music. You love opera. You love old recordings. We've listened to music together. You love high fidelity. You love analog. People now are at home. We're going to be at home for a lot longer, it looks like. Uh, what should we be listening to right now? I always, you know, this is this is the question that defines this show. <laughs> Everybody is asked this question. Some people have it's very surprising answers. I, I always give the uh, example of Ambassador Dennis Ross, who brokered the 1994 Israel-Jordan peace treaty, and he's the Middle East envoy, and, and, and how he said, no one knows this about me. And I think he was serious. He said, until now, he said, I, I get in my car after a big peace negotiation and I blast country music and I sing it uh, aloud with it around the car. So sometimes people have surprising answers. Uh, Malcolm Nance said he played flute with Bernstein uh, in high school orchestra in Philly one summer in Beethoven 7. So you learn things. So let's focus on what music you're listening to right now and what music we should be listening to to talk to a general audience and, and then then bring us in. Well, okay, I'm going to surprise you and say one of the things that I've been listening to is every Beatles song ever written. Okay, now why? <laughs> why have I been doing that? I think because I've needed, I've just gone through a big transition in my life during this pandemic. And it started a couple years ago that I knew I was going to move away from Bloomington, Indiana to my home state of Michigan. And I was going to start a new life, a life that would, that would interact with, you know, what has come before me. And maybe I would chart some new paths ahead. I felt that what I needed most right now was something that connected me to my early years uh, that influenced uh, a kind of uh, abandon in my personality, a creative, I get a groundbreaking that this group I felt really represented in terms of popular music at the time. And I also remember listening to it when I was at, uh, at the Academy at the Interlochen Arts Academy, where I was going to school, high school, which is about 35 minutes South of here. And I remember distinctly sitting and listening to Norwegian wood and Michelle and thinking, all right, first of all, these guys, these singers, the whole thing is, it's pop music, but there's something really deeply thoughtful about what they're singing and how they're singing it. And the harmonies, especially the harmonies. Anyway, I got really, there was some um, positive optimism to their music for me at this point. And I I know that may be surprising to you, Daniel, but <laughs> there, there comes a point when in some way, your childhood, when you're tying together parts of your life, it's very important to, at least for me, it was important to re-engage with the music that really kind of ignited elements of my personality to wake me up. And I think there's a there's a widespread of music that that, that represents, and they were part, a big part of it. All right, so that's, that is the kind of thing that gets me going in the morning if I listen to like two or three songs. I just feel upbeat and I feel, I don't know, reinforced 
by a group that was all about love and togetherness and staying united and peace, peace and love. And I kind of need that right now. I need to feel that about the world. All right. So that's one side of me. The other side would be like listening to some, some really deep Beethoven. Like I listened to these two sonatas I mentioned earlier, the 78 and the 110, Opus 110 and Opus 78. And I listened to, to, to classical music very specifically because I need to be able to feel at the end of what I'm listening to, like I've, I've come out of this willing to confront the darkest side of what I am experiencing as well. And when I do listen to Beethoven, I'm able to be in that, those, those, that area of my psychological state of mind. I feel comforted by him. I feel comforted by his ability to, to say in a musical, even a, a musical theme of a, I mean, usually it's the second movement, say something to me that actually, as I mentioned earlier, cannot be said any other way. A sense of hopelessness that is not necessarily without giving us some worth. Because I think we can't ever really enjoy positive optimism unless we've gone through a certain amount of darkness. And I think darkness doesn't mean that we have to become, give up and have despair. But I think we need to feel our despair in such a way that when we listen to it in a musical way like this with Beethoven, particularly it, Schubert, there's special people, Schumann. Okay. These three gentlemen, particularly for me, get me to that place of despair and darkness and a heaviness that is hard to bear just by yourself. And sometimes when you share that in the presence of, of a musical voice, like these three have, um, you come away and that dark part of you is much less painful. There, there has been an, there's been a release or a form given to it that you can put those feelings into. And actually there's some, some way they're quantified. It's not in your cells anymore. It's gone into an upper level of experience. Maybe that's inspiration. Maybe that's a feeling of ecstatic hope that somebody else has gone through this. A lot of concerts, a lot of teaching, a lot of interacting with musicians under your belt, so to speak. Uh, you're in Michigan now, a new phase. What are you going to be doing after this is all faded away? We hope the pandemic will go away at some point. At some point it will. We don't know when. Uh, concerts, teaching, writing, reading, what's going to be driving you? Well, the one very important project, and I still, I, I'm about to dive into it, is a part of recreating and getting out there a piece of history that I would like to not have lost. And that is the art of criticism, music criticism. And um, I want to put together, and I've been getting organized, a collection of my late husband's um, reviews from his 12 years of uh, being the music critic of the Boston Globe. Uh, it's not so much that, well, there are a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that musical reviews have become pretty much decimated uh, in newspapers, uh, either basically taken off the newspaper. Um, 
minimized. Um, there are very few people in criticism right now that are, I think, representing the kind of, well, again, again I'm calling a breadth of experience, a breadth of understanding music and, and understanding on a lot of levels what goes into creating great art, which is not just the music, but also the history around it and the the influences that generated um, the kind of world that these composers lived in. And Michael Steinberg was one of those writers who was able to uh, crystallize in very short form, initially in his reviews and then eventually into his program notes that he wrote for a number of symphony orchestras, um, the a, a view of not only just the work itself, but putting you in the time frame, like like a, putting you like into a time capsule, in in the way he introduced you into a work, and his reviews were sort of the workbench for these program notes that eventually became very sought after and are still used by a number of symphony orchestras. Um, he wrote for the Boston Symphony, the San Francisco Symphony, and the Minnesota Orchestra. And, but I still often get requests for his notes to be used on record jackets, et cetera. But anyway, the point is his voice is a unique voice. And it's again, from a period of time when people were literally educated in a very different way than we are today. It's more self-educated. Uh, many of the books that you see behind me are part of a library that he collected over his the years of his life. And um, I, I think that that type of thinker and that level of curiosity is something that I think we need to be in touch with and have an example of it so that we don't forget that actual, um, the actual desire to expand your mind and to, and to respect what history has taught us and what has given us, that that's essential to understanding what we're trying to deal with in any subject that we're dealing with. And all right, so that's one thing I'd like to do. It's a, it's a level of, of both retaining his, his, what he did and giving him, giving him more visibility because I think people slip out of history and and if you don't do something on their behalf, eventually I'm sure somebody will do something about him again. But that's one thing. As far as with young people, I, I feel I want to do something on some level to teach how to love music, sort of what I'm doing right now, maybe as an example of it to you on this, on this talk, which is, the the relationship that you have with music, which is by the time you get into your final educational years with it, you're really zoning in on trying to get yourself ready to get a job, to be able to be ready for employment in some form or another. And in doing that, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of pressure in the actual performing and of the instrument itself and how you actually execute the instrument. So that it's within your powers, it's within your command. Um, I think we, what sometimes is lost is what what are you commanding? What's supposed to come out? Where is that? Where is that relationship with you and the music? And it's not necessarily teaching only the music as as it should be taught in terms of the structure of it and what's in it, but just your relationship to it. And that's something I want to explore. It's something I want to learn to become a little bit more focused in how I would introduce it. I, uh, as you know, well, I have a real affinity for the second Viennese school. For those of you who do not know what that is, that's a period of, of composition in music that occurred in the thirties and the forties with three gentlemen 
really headed by one particular giant, and that was Arnold Schoenberg, who was a, uh, a Viennese composer who revolutionized sort of the way we think about the, the way you use notes in music. He created a style that was called the 12-tone scale. And not without going into a lot of detail, because that's not the big point of it. The point is he was a phenomenally, uh, like Beethoven, he broke a lot of molds and a lot of barriers in music in terms of structure and the way he treated harmony. And he was a great teacher of harmony. He had two particular students, Alban Berg and Anton Webern. Those three gentlemen became sort of the triumvirate of the second Beanie school. Now, I knew that if I was going to ask students to learn this music with me, that it was there was going to be a large, a large hurdle in front of me and in front of them. But the point was not just to get over the hurdle, but it was to learn to deeply appreciate the ex expressive values and the expressive um, magnitude of these three people and how I viewed them as remarkable, remarkable voices in music. And so from that point of view, if I didn't take, if I don't take the time to really uh, continue that work, I think I will have maybe, I will have not finished my, my particular role as a as a musician and as a potentially as a teacher and mentor. So some form of that's going to happen. Not sure exactly how. Are you practicing violin a lot right now? Not a whole lot. I mean, I have to say I have, because of this moving to here, I, my relationship to the violin is, has entered a phase of appreciating it from afar, which is a strange way of looking at this. But you know, when you've lived with this right here in your face and in your hands, nonstop from for 60 years 68 years actually um it's it feel, i think it was before the birth of the child you're already playing my mother knew she knew one of us was going to play the violin so i must have been already prepping myself for it um uh, in any case there there comes a point when you when i need to feel myself coming back to the instrument again almost like i'm going to rediscover myself at it how do I know if I'm going to do that? I don't know, because honestly, quite honestly, to anybody who's listening to me, I'm not sure you always know what's going to happen. So I'm doing something very unique in my experience for myself. And I, when I start to get back to playing, there are a number of people up here where I live who are old friends and players. And um, I'm sure we're going to get back into some kind of playing with each other, doing chamber music. And I don't know, when this thing opens up, not really quite sure, but you know, the fact of the matter is, that's been a friend for life, the violin. And I don't ever think I will not have some aspect of myself deeply embedded in it, even if I'm not playing it. Um, I've, I have students and of course I'm playing, I'm, I'm using music and talking about the instrument with them, which of course, I know that terrain, you know, when you've known a terrain so well, you understand the physics and the basics of it beyond, beyond just literally playing it. And that's, that's rising above the actual physicality of playing it. That's, that's living in a sort of um, a, a grip of, of the essence of what it is, the essence of what, what generates what all the components. And when you can, like a doctor, when you've studied something, the body, you know, it's so well, you can look at a person and you can diagnose what's happening pretty much. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be at that point in my life, actually. Can you wait to get back on the big stage for 3,000 people? <laughs> I don't 
know. You know, I'm, that's a good, that's a very unknown question and answer for me. I don't know. I, I know that I've, I've thrived on, on playing for large groups of people. I, I might do it again. I might've actually done that for the last time. I, I, it's very hard to say. I think right now is an interesting time of reassessing a lot about one's life. And I think it's a great time. It's an opportunity that I have found only valuable to me. What was the last big show you played? Can you remember? Mm, it was probably big, very big, like an orchestra pl- orchestra concert. Yeah. yeah. Or the last one at all. Well, the last one I did was actually a Schoenberg work, which was the Ode to Napoleon. And that's a very bizarre and un, uh, sort of an unleashed uh, theatrical work by Schoenberg with with an, uh, a person who's narrating the, the, the actual words by Byron of Napoleon, a poem that he wrote on Napoleon, which is over the top, exaggerated, extreme, flamboyant, verbally just full of imagery and madness and the music is equally mad and and unbelievably intensely put together into this way that just takes the words and and embraces every meaning of them with the same attitude and the same sense of of kinsmanship to the to what was being said it was hair raising and it was one of the greatest ways to leave my life in bloomington and in a funny way the explosion of everything that's happened since then, it was like an explosion before another explosion. So what can I say about my life? Georgia Flizanis, interesting times and your insights are appreciated. And I thank you. Thank you, Daniel. It was wonderful to talk to you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.